Welcome to the Soho Theatre on November the 11th, 2012 for No Pressure to be Funny, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. And now it is time to introduce your host, a man whose failure to go to Eton means that he won't be the next Archbishop of Canterbury or a senior member of the Conservative Party, although this week that might be considered a blessing in disguise. Please welcome Mr James O'Brien! <laughs> to No Pressure to be Funny, the topical discussion show where we won't be handing anyone pieces of paper to surprise them. Personally, we think Philip Schofield should be dismissed simply for giving David Cameron the opportunity to look dignified on daytime television. (laughs) Cameron himself, of course, has stated he's worried that inquiries into paedophiles might turn into a witch hunt on gay people. Of course, A really good way to start counteracting that is to imply that all paedophiles are gay. (laughs) Meanwhile, George Entwistle has promised to comment on his Today programme appearance with John Humphreys just as soon as he finds out he was on it. (laughs) Imagine how upset he'll be when he finds out he's resigned. (laughs) Nadine Dorries has defended herself against charges of deserting her constituents for a month to appear on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. She's done this by pointing out that Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burt had spent 20 weeks abroad this year. Clearly, the words foreign, (laughs) office and minister don't connect up in any meaningful sense for Miss Dorries. But it doesn't matter anyway, as a straw poll of her constituents has found that they were, and I quote, quite relieved. Australia's bug population, on the other hand, is said to be deeply worried by this unwanted infestation and is considering legal action. Let us begin by bringing on our musical guest this evening, described by one website as a guitar-toting, politician-smoting, small and burly, short and curly, pumped-up, loved-up, finger-picking, ass-kicking, musical comedy imp. Please welcome Steve Grimmin. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to do for you tonight um, a very, very topical song uh, about the phenomenon that is the James Bond franchise of movies. Um, uh, have we all seen Skyfall yet? Yeah. Uh, those of you who haven't, uh, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Um, <laughs> I would nearly spoil the ending there where they all go off in a big ship to an alien land. Um, but uh, times are hard, of course. Uh, the coalition government are pressing the cuts. And uh, it takes, on average, uh, I think five years to make each Bond movie. And uh, the organisation behind the Bond movies have said that uh, this time there may be severe cutbacks. So I present to you the world's first ever austerity James Bond anthem uh, with deep apologies to Shirley Bassey because I think she's, she's always been the best. So, uh, and this one's... Uh, uh, there are other austerity James Bond films in the offing. Uh, unwanted, unwanted Goldfinger, um, <laughs> on Her Majesty's uh, social services, and uh, and this one, which is called From Runcorn with Love. Drives an S-Reg for Monday-o Cos our budgets, 
they need squeezing M stands for monetary restrictions And Q stands for quantitative easing He has to pay to renew his license to kill The only reason he shares a shower now Is to cut down on the water bill Because tomorrow never dies Just like the Bond franchise Of you to a kill is dull With these energy efficient light bulbs And just as surely as Sean Connery is a Scot Diamonds are forever But disability benefits not You want some exotic locations And you'd better not hold your breath The next one takes place in Moss Side And the new Bond girl is called Crystal Meth The speedboat chase is down the Leeds Canal And the next Bond film is called Chicken Royale For your eyes only Bond now only drinks WKD And when he goes out after dark He wears a tuxedo from Primark Miss Moneypenny's been devalued We're all out of luck And if Thunderball doesn't come up this Saturday night Then we're all fucked We're all fucked This evening is a comedian, writer, and conceptual restaurateur. Whether as Alan Parker, urban warrior, the League Against Tedium, or simply someone wearing clothes donated to him by the comedian Jeff Green, it is a genuine pleasure to welcome to the stage Simon Monnery. Uh, our second guest is a, is a writer, producer, and novelist who has said that he wished to have more on his tombstone than Red Dwarf on its own. As he's now started performing on the stand-up circuit too, he will at least have the chance to die more than once, thus opening up all kinds of tombstone possibilities. We are very pleased to welcome Rob Grant. Thank you. Our, our second guest this evening, uh, our third guest even, basic economics there, <laughs> is a journalist and commentator who is also president of the British Humanist Association, meaning that she too got passed over for Archbishop of Canterbury. Please, welcome to the stage, Polly Toynbee. Whee. And our, our final panellist is a comedian, writer and broadcaster who wasn't in the running for Archbishop of Canterbury, but... As a passionate Crystal Palace fan, he does tend to pray quite a lot <laughs> and probably has greater faith. Kevin Day. <laughs> and we, we begin the panel section with the devil's 
advocates with the motion that the BBC's management structure is a faultless piece of machinery. Please welcome to the stage Alistair Barry. Having been out of the country for most of the last month, I did get rather the wrong end of the stick when I returned a couple of days ago to discover that apparently a lot of perfectly respectable paedophiles had been unfairly accused of being conservatives. <laughs> this, combined with the fact that going to Wrexham has become one of the most serious euphemisms available to media commentators, also caught my eye. I couldn't agree more. I've only been there once and I got a speeding ticket. However, as I eased back into British life, I was able to get a somewhat better grasp on the story. Mainly, which is just the sort of thing you could tell a foreigner to reassure them that we're all slightly mad in this country. Either that, or play them some of the more eccentric excerpts from the Olympics opening ceremony. This is, of course, a very serious issue, and it would be terrible if serious allegations of media misbehaviour were allowed to go unreported in the face of frivolous reports of widespread child abuse. Luckily, the BBC's management structure is a faultless piece of machinery that managed to employ a predatory paedophile as a children's TV presenter for most of our lifetimes, but then decided not to run its own programme investigating the allegations as the copious number of witnesses were clearly unreliable and would clash horribly with a series of tributes to said paedophile. Following this up with a programme alleging similar crimes against someone who may once have been a senior Conservative until you actually looked at a picture of him might seem a little careless, but I have a terrible memory for faces too, and this is clearly just bad luck. And now, poor George Entwistle has had to fall upon his sword. Luckily, John Humphreys helpfully held it up for him as he did so, <laughs> which just goes to show the supportive nature of the BBC's management structure. Comparisons to owners being savaged by their own rottweilers are, of course, completely unfair, as one could see from Andrew Marr licking Lord Patton on television this morning. <laughs> as Lord Patton so rightly put it, the BBC was in crisis 12 hours ago, but isn't anymore, which is exactly the sort of problem-solving the BBC are able to pull off thanks to the faultlessness of the machinery of their management structure. It also goes to prove that there's nothing so bad a good night's sleep can't sort it out. I mean, you wake up in the morning, it's a new day, and nothing seems quite so bad, does it? Of course, the BBC does now need a new director-general and editor-in-chief, preferably one who does some directing, the odd bit of generaling, and possibly just a little editing. But Lord Patton and the board have, I'm sure, got everything in hand, and it is only now a matter of fine-tuning a much-loved engine back to a roadworthy purr. Always remember, if you've got a complex crisis to work out, Chris will fix it. Although a wise director-general might consider editing that last joke out. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Alistair Barry. Thank you, Alistair. And it is into the BBC brouhaha that we shall dive headfirst. Our first question actually comes via Twitter from a, a Mr Rupert Murdoch of, <laughs> of New York, London and Mordor. Uh, <laughs> who tweeted earlier, Editor-in-Chief apologises and pleads total ignorance, press-having field day, what are editors for? Um, Polly Toynbee, what are editors for? Well, the BBC does have a lot of them. I was in the BBC newsroom as social affairs editor for seven years, and there are layers and layers and layers of them, and they all worry non-stop about getting things right, and mostly they do but they also often get in the way of things. And I think that um, 
what happened was there was such a, a panic about having pulled the Jimmy Savile uh, program and being accused of not believing victims that they did what the BBC often does and went too far in the other direction and said, we must believe every word of a victim without even checking up what their past had been and what their record was. And when it turned out that you know, he'd not been believed before and had not always told the truth, the BBC didn't know. So it's, I think it's a, it gets into a panic in these feeding frenzies. And, and I mean, it almost adds more weight to the question of what all these different layers of management are supposed to be there for, because pa panic is what we on the, on the shop floor do. Panic is the, is the preserve of the foot soldier. The generals are supposed to be at least sort of marshalling a little bit more resolution. Well, they are great panickers. But on the whole, you know, we have to remember BBC journalism is still rightly the most respected around the world. You know, Rupert Murdoch is out to get the BBC, and it's been quite plain today. He's had all his people out, all his newspapers have been out there saying, you know, the BBC's much too big to manage. It needs to be broken up. No one person can be in charge of it. And we are seeing the vultures circling, and there is no doubt. You know, he is, it's always been his agenda. You read the Sunday Times, you read the Sun on Sunday, they're all out to get the BBC. And, you know, one bad mistake, two bad mistakes, it doesn't mean uh, the end of the organisation. Kevin Day, you're still on the payroll, aren't you, at the Beep? Uh, I'm freelance, but I spend a lot of time there. The atmosphere at the BBC is so tense at the moment that the news that Clive Dunn was just dead was actually good. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he had no knowledge that this was going out, and it's incredible because you work... Everybody who works at the BBC knows that the, the creative part of it is a very tiny little room that's left now in a corner of the canteen. Everything else is down to management. You think there's so many... There's 15 managers for every writer there. One of them must notice what the fuck's going on. Surely one of them is paid. One of them, I'm sure there's a door that actually says what the fuck's going on. <laughs> and there's a person who works in there whose job it is to look entirely to see what's going on. There's a tweet. I, I, got that, I, got that, I knew that tweet was coming. I knew somebody was going to be named. I knew it wasn't him anyway. It, it was, the really, fact that he didn't did know, and the fact that he was quite proud of the fact that he didn't seem to How does he rise through the ranks a quarter of a century he's been working at the, the BBC? The way most people at the BBC rise through the ranks, totally unnoticed. I generally don't know anyone in the senior position. I don't, well, to be fair, you can see by the type of programmes I do that I don't know many people in senior positions at the BBC. But you know but, Gary Lineker. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but the, 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 I don't, the point is, I don't know, I seriously don't know anyone in senior management at the BBC who used to make television programmes anymore. And my understanding is that people always talk about a golden age of the 60s and 70s that you've probably heard about where if yeah. you, you, you would walk down a corridor and literally shout an idea into a room and, and it would be made next week. Nobody at the BBC seems to have got in a position of management trust through making television programmes. And I think that's part of the right, problem. And, and what and you've got was editor of Newsnight, yeah. but it, it seems even harder Programmes that we watch. It, well, all right. Um, Rob, you, you also have had dealings with, 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 with most major broadcasters, not on the news side of things, admittedly, but how plausible do you find the notion that something... Because the, the Director-General of the BBC is not going to know, presumably, be expected to know what's happening on Blue Peter or, or No, this like is why I, so I don't understand. that there, there are four BBC channels plus all the radio channels. He can't possibly watch every programme. Yeah, but he was told, though. He was warned beforehand that it was... He was with Savile. He wasn't with the with the Newsnight story. With the with the. But what's odd is that we did all know. We all, we were all anybody who's on Twitter knew that Newsnight was coming up with an exciting story that was going to mm. reveal. Uh, Do you uh, believe it? And I think it's true. I think well, I think he lives. I, I think in some ways it's worse. I think it's really true. He said I was working on a speech <clears> for the next day and I didn't. Worse still, he didn't read the front page of the Guardian the next day <laughs> that told him the story wasn't true. I never read that either. That's that's really criminal. Do we think it's a, it's, it's a good thing that he resigned, or should he have hung on and, and tried to sort the bloody mess out before 
abandoning the ship. I did, you, you, you've been on the panel for about five bloody minutes, and now you're asking me questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. Who, who's winning? <laughs> I, I think Humphreys did for him. I, 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 just, I think that, that that interview was, uh, if there was any hope of survival before that, the admissions that he made in the interview, Humphreys was given an open goal, he didn't have to... Um, but be on particularly blistering form once the Director General sits there and says, no, I didn't read the story about my uh, flagship news programme on the front page of the House Journal of the BBC because I was too busy <laughs> writing a speech. Uh, that was the point at which everyone thought, well, what the bloody hell do you do all day? It's a quarter of a century to get the job, 52 days, I think, I think to lose it. Simon, Simon Munnery, your thoughts? Well, I don't think he should have left the Who. <laughs> <laughs> Great band. <really. laughs> <laughs> but seeing that, he, seeing that he did choose to, to, to plough that alternative furrow... Did, did. He can always go back. They're always reforming. You know. <laughs> uh, I'm not worried about it. He'll be all right. <laughs> do you think anyone could do the job, Kevin? I was going to say, the, the Twitter things, even my dad's on Twitter. That's how he found out about the Titanic. Um, <laughs> I do have a, a really sentimental loyalty and attachment to the BBC, uh, even though I've, I've never been staffed there, but... I hate the fact that people are so gleeful yes. at the BBC's discomfort at the moment. I did a radio show with somebody called uh, Hugo Rifkin recently. I wasn't going to name him, I was just going to say a twat. But, uh, <laughs> he was just, he just, he couldn't restrain himself. He, and his point was, he said, well, all you people now, you know exactly how it was for us news international journalists when we were unfairly... But I said, you weren't, you, most of you were doing what you were accused of doing. It was mm. awful, the fact that he was using this... And, and whatever the tabloid press tell you, they've got no interest in the, the, the victims whatsoever. They don't care about what happened to the people that were abused. They only care about using it as a stick to beat the BBC with. And that's, at, at the moment, it's, it's uncomfortable because you feel, even though I don't work there, you feel that you have to be in a situation to defend the BBC and some of the things that have gone on aren't defensible. You always hear about a public outcry, but there isn't one. No. It's just a, it's a sort of a self-fulfilling media storm. There's nothing. No one cares. But, but, the, but the head of the whole organisation has resigned, so... Yeah, I don't care. Did, I, you're probably right. <laughs> it is unlikely on the Tube home this evening that this will be a major topic of conversation. Well, there's no topic of conversation on the Tube, if you've ever been on one. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, and, but and we like on that. a Sunday evening, you often have some fairly enlightening banter. Is it you? You're the one yeah, that I, talks. I, I, <laughs> I we hate people like you. tomorrow's <laughs> programme, that's usually... My role, but that, no, it isn't, uh, Kevin. We care, Polly, you care probably even more than, than the, many of us do as ex-BBC uh, currently. That's not the reason I care. I mean, uh, no, I care because I think the BBC really matters. I think it's, it's one of the few things this country does that matters globally, that matters everywhere. And, you know, when Tahir Square was going on, where did people turn to? They turned to the BBC. It is the most trusted news outlet in the world. It's, it's the best thing we do that sends out... That, 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 that we do for the world as well as for ourselves. And yet um, there's no doubt that Rupert Murdoch has always wanted to destroy it because he sees it as his only real competitor to B Sky B, which is already bigger and will be much bigger than the BBC and will crowd out everything else. And he sees the BBC as his only natural threat. Um, and the world without the BBC smells a lot like Fox News. I, I think it does. Well, I think if, if, if Jeremy Hunt had allowed uh, Rupert Murdoch to take over the whole of B Sky B, the next move was to change our broadcasting laws so we wouldn't any longer have to have a law about no bias and neutrality in broadcasting. Yes. And that would have allowed Fox News here, which is what he wanted. And I think that really would have been a disaster. You, you see the importance of that when you see something like the American election unfolding. And you think, what would the result have been in America if, if, if Fox News hadn't been telling bald lies? 
from the very beginning of the entire <laughs> of the entire election campaign. You know, just over what it's about 52.1% now. They think after Florida were persuaded, despite their news media. It is uh, it is kind of scary. I mean, but it, 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 Obama would have won twice, wouldn't he? At least yeah. twice. Well, do, you, do you know what's interesting? My brother-in-law is American. Two weeks ago, I, I, he, I was talking to him on the phone. He said he couldn't see any other result other than Obama winning. And he said the more that Fox News peddled that lie, the less credible they became, even for people like him. Who's not, he, he voted Obama. He, he's one of those people who sits down, looks at the case for both sides, decides who he's going to vote for. He's not party political. But he said he couldn't see any other result other than, despite American politicians implying that the hurricane was deliberately fixed. <laughs> and I just, I love the fact, because there is a Republican senator this week who's, who's saying that the, the floods were God's vengeance on the homosexual. Mm. Because what better way can you get to anger a homosexual by sending a raft full of firemen across his flooded basement? <laughs> we may uh, consider me punished. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah! I just want to wrap up on the on the BBC issues. Going back to how it all started, um, uh, Rob, with with the Jimmy Savile story. It, mm. Oddly, you can see why reluctance, as Polly touched upon, reluctance to go in too heavily on an accusation against somebody may have actually been quite a good thing in the context of the, of the <coughs> Conservative politician, who I don't know for the purpose well, of this I, podcast whether we're naming or not tonight. There is this big thing where everybody believes that Jimmy Savile is guilty. I yes. don't personally believe he was innocent, uh, but he hasn't been convicted in any kind of court except the court of uh, public opinion and the press. And it's, you, you, it's very dodgy territory that... Now you've got Chris Patton saying he's an evil uh, yes. child molester without his having ever been accused of it in, in, uh, and convicted and gone through the... He was, a, he was accused of it. He was accused of it by the then head of Radio 2 and he denied it point blank. And that's the, that's the trouble. That's, once, where, that's where it ends. Once he denies it point blank, that's, that's where it ends. I mean, we all... Somebody said to me, well, when you heard this rumour about Jimmy Savile, why didn't you do something about it? I said, well, the thing to do would be to go to a very senior producer and tell yes. them... But it was a very senior producer who told me about it. Because it's like, because you work on the basis, you think, well, if I know, and I'm an idiot, mm. the police must know. I didn't for a second think that any of the rumours were anything other than scurrilous workplace gossip, simply for the fact that you think, if those rumours are true, he can't possibly work in here. And it turned out that they were true, and he shouldn't possibly have been working there. That's the most... Enduringly it, fascinating ho- element of the whole story. I was going to say horrifying, because in hindsight, everybody's tainted by it. The fact that you did know... And it did turn out, and I'd, I'd take what you say, to, you know, well, you haven't reached the fact yet mm. that we can dig him up like a medieval pope and put him on trial, although I think the son <laughs> would give it a go if they yeah. had to. Um, although he's buried in a concrete coffin, as it turned out, um, which everybody said was to stop grave robbers, but now the conspiracy theory is that he couldn't get his DNA. Always thinking. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, ge- I'm genuinely horrified that I, he is buried, he's buried in a solid... Mm. But I am genuinely horrified. I, I am genuinely horrified that it turned out that in a tiny, tiny way, I didn't know of the rumour. Yes. I, my argument is, I, uh, there's nothing I could do. Obviously, it, I, well, everyone. I, I, I mean, know, especially when it comes to the newspapers, then turning their ire on the BBC for having done nothing about it. I, I was a show business journalist for, for for a while, and everybody, everybody, as you say, talked about it. It's, uh, it, mm. it, it, it actually does beg a belief that nothing happened. It's almost as if I think someone on Have I Got News for you said he was hiding in plain sight, Simon. It's, it, 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 yeah, it's I mean, I knew from a very early age. Uh, well, I didn't know he was a... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I, it hurt, but that's investigative journalism. 
uh, so what I knew, he was, he was a necrophiliac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what... Um, he, uh, he worked at Stoke Na- Mandeville, and years ago, so he said, oh, you know, Jimmy, someone's a necrophiliac. I'm like, oh. So I knew, and I think a lot of people knew something, but, OK, so you know something, and... Also, you came from a different era. We were, you know, at that time, it would have been called Nookie or something. We're judging it from different sounds. Yes. You, you look, look at Top of the Pops. The, these, these, right, presumably, when Jimmy Savile started his sexual career or life or whatever it was, he was about the same age as them, but he just got stuck on that particular <laughs> uh, that, that age group. Um, a, but a manager underage. Mecca, Mecca Ballroom in Leeds, and that's exactly what happened. He, yeah, he was a sort and of you know the one that we well, played. He was, he was a twelve-year-old boy drummer in an all-female band, wouldn't it? It's strange. But your thing about your point about a different era. On have I got news for you? The first one of this series, when they talked about Jimmy Savile, they showed a clip of Jimmy Savile mm. on the show from about 1994, and the clip they showed was uh, Angus sends Jimmy Savile. So this caravan that you've been talking about, what do you do in it? And he said, anything that moves. Yeah. Now the only thing you could hear on I, the only thing you could hear on Have I Got News for You was the audible gasp yeah. from our, from the audience now. But in the studio, what they played was a response to the audience at the time, which was only 10, 15 years ago, which was a fucking massive laugh and a round of applause. Well, it's, it's a funny so laugh. This, so this, this, it is, but this, so this whole thing about oh, we all knew is all sinister. Yeah. You talk to people like my mum and dad. You say this bloke who used to sit on Jim will fix it wearing a gold lamé vest. Did it occur to you that it was anything wrong? No, not at all. <laughs> Simply didn't. This, so this thing that we're all suspicious isn't. The, gen- the general public simply weren't, and I'm sure that's what you played the book because yeah, I'm sure at Stoke Mandeville Hospital there were, there were probably managers and administrators going, well, he is doing these awful things, but on the same token, he's bringing us three million quid a year, so we'll keep that. And so I'm sure that's, that was. The Can point. I do a joke about Peter Philia joke? Uh, I've done it for about it, ten years. Do you want me to introduce it properly? Or Tee it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Monnery. <laughs> well, uh, was that well, it? He could be gag. Yes. So the uh, my paedophile gag goes like, well, you know, the the the, the son, the tabloids, all want to hang the paedophiles, kill the paedophiles, and that. The trouble is, most paedophiles were victims of child abuse themselves when they were young. So the only sure way to stamp out paedophilia is hang the victims. <laughs> but that's controversial. <laughs> a neat junction in this evening's proceedings, at which point I shall invite back to the stage uh, with, a, with a typical tale of metropolitan life in London's fashionable West End. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Revel. About six months ago, uh, true story, uh, I, was, I was on the platform at Covent Garden Tube and, and there were four German tourists uh, and they were talking to each other and, and secretly making jokes about this disabled Indian guy who was on the platform. Uh, well, they thought secretly because obviously they didn't think that anybody in London speaks fluent German, um, but they do now. Uh, but I didn't hit them straight away uh, for various reasons. Firstly, I'd had a couple of drinks. Uh, secondly, I didn't know what happening, had been happening before I got there. Maybe the disabled guy had been behaving like an arsehole and he deserved it. Uh, because, you know, the, the last thing you ever want to do is to get in, engaged in a fight, even a morally righteous one, without knowing the full facts. Uh, and, and the third reason I didn't get involved straight away. So my German's pretty good, but it was a bit rusty, so I just wanted to make sure I was all right. So I listened for, uh, for a bit longer uh, until I was certain I was hearing them right, uh, and then I just walked up to them and I, I, I told them in German that I thought that their, their, their racist mockery of the disabled guy was, was very, very funny, uh, and would they <laughs> like me to translate it for him? <laughs> 
Now, in fairness to them, at this point, they, they did defy the Teutonic stereotype by showing they'd picked up on my, my irony. They really, really looked embarrassed. They were really, really mortified. And I, I felt really good because, you know, I'd been restrained. I'd, I'd, I'd made the intervention. I'd made the point. There was no need to do any more. I could now just walk away and leave them to stew in their own shame. So immediately... I stayed exactly where I was and carried on insulting them until the next train came in. There was a gap in the service, six minutes. It was great. All these Bavarian swear words were coming back to me. It was terrific. But then when the train came in, I, I, I made a point of walking right to the other end of the, of the platform and getting on a different carriage so they didn't get out of hand, the point had been made. And, and this is the weird thing now, because then this dialogue started in my head at this point. There was part of me saying, well done, Nick, you, you did that well, you, you, you judged it nicely, you made your point, there was, there was no nastiness. And then there was another voice in my head, because I had a couple of drinks, uh, saying, you are the first male in your family in four generations who has never killed a German. <laughs> and I was trapped in this moral quandary, you know. But, but in the end, I just sat there and, and punched somebody for reading the Daily Mail instead. You know, which I know is a bit out of order, but they did look a lot like Melanie Phillips, so, you know. So. Now, now, my point is, I don't want you to think I'm coming into this next bit from some kind of pacifist, hippie, moral, high-ground perspective. I'm as flawed as the next person. Eleven years ago... Uh, we went into Afghanistan to uh, destroy terrorist training bases, and, and I personally think we had every right to do so, and I can totally understand why NATO uh, targeted those bases and destroyed them. Uh, uh, and 11 years later, we're still there. The bases aren't, uh, but only because they've relocated to Yemen, Somalia, and just about every country in North Africa, apart from the ones where we send people to be tortured while we wage the war on terror, which has been renamed now for marketing purposes. Whatever, it, whatever the new name is isn't as catchy because no one can remember it. Um, so it seems to me that the two choices we have to, are to invade everywhere that an Islamic terrorist pops up... Uh, which means just about every country on the planet, or find a new way. I mean, to be fair, we have achieved some stuff while we've been in Afghanistan. We've overthrown Group A, a government of misogynistic drug-dealing warlords, and replaced it with Group B, an elected government of warlord misogynists <laughs> who deal way more drugs, but also wear Western-style suits. Oh, and the meaning of the word elected in that last sentence has been redefined for marketing purposes. <laughs> and any time soon, uh, if not at the moment, we will be negotiating with Group A to find a way of them to work with Group B in government. And meanwhile, our soldiers will be getting killed until the balance of power is restored to roughly what it was 11 years ago before they were sent there. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but the sharp end of the war is, is fought from these forward operating bases, which can only be supplied along really perilous mountain roads, which are controlled by warlords and the Taliban and the Haqqani network and so on. And ambush is very easy. So NATO have to pay the warlords and the Taliban so that the supplies can get through to the forward bases unmolested, so that NATO can then fight the same warlords they pay to let the supplies get through. And I think it's comforting to know that this war is being conducted according to the highest British principles of fair play. It's, it's not the winning that is important, it's the taking part that counts. 
No one in all of history has successfully invaded Afghanistan. And I think the people who planned that invasion should have known that. Or at least maybe uh, they might have read a newspaper at some point between 1980 and 1989. And if they had, they might have noticed that the USSR, a country which no longer exists, tried to invade Afghanistan. And that's one of the reasons that it no longer <laughs> exists. Because I think if you're going to invade a country, you should at least have enough knowledge about it to make a reasonable showing in a pub quiz. That seems to me only polite to the people directly involved. Now, don't get me wrong, I've no sympathy for people who shoot Muslim schoolgirls in the head for wanting to be schoolgirls, nor for people who don't utter a word of objection about that but do riot and kill over a crap film that slanders their imaginary friend. (laughs) And I also wear a poppy, not to not to celebrate the killings, but to mourn the dead. But I won't be going to the Sun newspaper's annual Millie's Awards this year, where soldiers get to stare fleetingly down the silicon-enhanced cleavage of a real-life soap opera sex goddess and have a drink with a famous footballer as compensation for having their arms blown off in the collective effort to increase Halliburton's stock value. (laughs) Categories at the Millie's include Best Unit, Bravest Soldier and Most Photogenic Afghan Civilian Maimed in a Drone Attack. One of those categories I made up. (laughs) I support the troops in that I don't think they should be in in harm's way in Afghanistan, and yet in many people's eyes that's an insult to the dead, apparently, and the only way to show respect is to keep sending more to die. Like the other day, and this is true, I was doing a gig, and a guy in the audience says to me, You disgust me! Our lads are fighting and risking their lives for our freedom in Afghanistan, and you're just standing there saying whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, my my great grandfather fought in the First World War, and uh, my grandfather fought in the Second World War, and my dad did national service, and now we're having a generation off. Yeah, what do I think about? All, all, all the war. Uh, I, 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 I went on the march, uh, the no war. The Iraq. The first one, the no war march. Was it Iraq? No, it was before that. Yeah. Yeah. Iraq. yeah. Two million of us. And we all chanted, no war, no war. And the government listened and went, no, war. <laughs> With a comma. That's the important They just took a couple in. That's all you've got to do. That's <laughs> uh, true. Well, uh, do you, do you, I mean, I, forgive me, I don't know whether you were in favour or, or, or were talking more about Afghanistan than Iraq, but obviously anyone who believes now what they believed 11 years ago is either on incredibly thin ice or, or, or somewhat hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was against the Iraq war, but I'm afraid I was in favour of the Afghan war at the time. You know, it was kind of thought it'd be over by Christmas, uh, get rid of the Taliban, get out. And 11 years later, it's horrible. And I'm, I think it's, it's particularly disgusting in this phase where we know we are going uh, in... That's the strangest thing. We, we know we're going, date. and we know that we're going to go, and it's not going to be better by the time we leave. We, the only reason we're staying until then is because... We said to the Americans we would. They're going as well. And uh, we know that we are sending out boys to be killed for no other reason than saving politicians' face. Uh, Labour did it. Tories are doing it now. And I don't know how you could be a defence minister or the prime minister and see those troops going off and know perfectly well that there is no longer... I mean, in the beginning, at least there was, even if it turned out to be a fantasy, the idea that you were going to go in to do some good. 
But when you send each lot, new lot of troops out each time now, you know perfectly well you're how, not. How do you lose face if you, if you come back? Because some popular electoral movements in, in, in France, I think, and elsewhere have said we, we, we'll come out even earlier than the NATO. Oh, of course they could, but they just somehow got themselves into a position where they said, we mustn't go before we said we would or yes. it'll look like retreat. If we go in an orderly fashion, it won't be orderly. Uh, at the time we said we'd go... Uh, then that's politically acceptable. So it's pure politics now, no longer military. And, and, and speaking of pure politics, in the, is, is there mileage in the idea that perhaps the call for, for our troops to be brought back, and indeed all of, all of the Western troops to be withdrawn, would be more vociferous if people hadn't died? Do you, you see what I mean by that? Because yeah. but the minute we withdraw, we render the sacrifice, and this is a horrible word to use, but more or less meaningless. Throwing good blood after bad blood is, is uh, no answer at all and I think um, you could you know you could do it in a reasonably political way and just say we think uh, we've done as much as we can possibly do we'll go home now you don't have to admit defeat even if everybody will say it's his defeat uh, even if uh, Afghanistan may be not much better when we all depart than it mm. was before I, I wear a poppy for two reasons one because it's easy because <laughs> I had a similar situation filming at Norwich City Football Club last year, halfway through, halfway through October, where I was told in no uncertain terms by three or four people that not wearing a poppy rendered me part of the Taliban, pretty much. But the other reason I wear a poppy is because, despite the fact that I'm a coward and a pacifist, I, history is my passion, the military history in particular. And you can't study military history without being aware of the devastating effect on, for the most part, ordinary young lives. And I think it's perfectly possible to be against war completely and to commemorate the loss of life. But what I hate is the compulsion. I th the fact now at the, at the BBC, I got so bollocked by my producer for not wearing a poppy live on, uh, on television, even though it's before November. The fact <coughs> is, you, you see Strictly Come Dancing last night, every single person has got a sparkly poppy in exactly the same place. And you get ludicrous situations like you get yesterday where the, nobody really knows what they're doing. Uh, mm. Arsenal yesterday is very moving at the Emirates Stadium. You've got two clubs having a minute silence, and the camera pans along the football players, who've all got their heads bowed with their arms behind their back, and it pans along the Arsenal team, and it's quite moving, you can't hear a pin drop, and it pans to a ten-foot foam dinosaur, Gunasaurus, the Arsenal, who's got his head bowed, he can't take his cap off because his arms are too fucking short, <laughs> and he can't pass his arms behind his back, so any, any, any dignity is taken out of the situation by the fact that he's fucking ten-foot foam dinosaur, who I presume is grieving for Godzilla or the fucking ISO. It's just, it's just ludicrous. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr Steve Gribbin. Um, those of you uh, familiar with uh, the works of Dan Brown, um, probably our, our premier novelist of the last uh, 50 years, will be aware of the rumour that's been circulating um, that um, Jesus Christ was married. Uh, I think it was probably to Mary Magdalene, this is the theory, and that they lived a life of wedded bliss. Uh, now, a new academic uh, in the University of Harvard has come out, an American academic uh, a professor, has said that um, she's found a piece of scroll that proves that Jesus was married. Uh, and I've written a song about it, uh, dealing with the... Uh, the life of bliss that they lived in Galilee together. So it was a civil ceremony. I got married, and uh, Stag Knight was good at Herod's, the nightclub. Uh, Lazarus, he was, he was dead to the world. But um, there's only about six Bible readers in the... Um, <laughs> we are in godless Soho. Um, I, I can do this song because I myself am a devout Catholic. Uh, 
I go to church regularly uh, every seven or eight years. So uh, this one's... Uh, I'll just do this for safety. And uh, <laughs> this one's called Mr and Mrs Christ and deals with uh, their wedded bliss in Galilee. said you can turn the water into wine but you still can't do the dishes who's been in the fridge again and had my five loaves and two fishes 40 days and 40 nights sounds like a hell of a bender and we'll never get a mortgage now not since you pissed off the money lenders Mr and Mrs Christ they go together like Joseph and Arimathea Jesus got a nasty surprise when she bought a big wooden cross from Ikea She said you never take me out anymore You only like hanging round with the guys I don't trust St Peter, he's a sneaky bastard And Jesus has got wonky eyes He said whatever happened to us He used to worship the water I walked on <laughs> She said, I don't know who you are anymore. You're like three different beings in one. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Christ. She said, where's your dad? He said, he's everywhere. What about your career? You always promised me you'd be promoted upstairs. Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Where'd you go over Easter? Don't spin me a yarn. Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Shut that door behind you where you're born in a barn. Yeah, you were. I know you were. You've always got to have the last word on everything. And the word was made flesh. You made me sick. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Christ, it was a marriage made in heaven. Oh. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Griffith. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I have in front of me Dogma and Disarray by Polly Toynbee and David uh, Walker, which is, which is subtitled Cameron at Half Time. This is only available via the Guardian website. Was there any possibility ever that you would have found this government to be praiseworthy? I think I hadn't expected them to be anything like they turned out to be. If you just remember Cameron before the last election, you know, hugging hoodies, uh, huskies, uh, saying he loved the NHS and was no, no top down reorganisations. Um, talking with sincerity about poverty and social justice. Um, I thought that he really was repositioning his party in a different place. Um, but he didn't. And, you know, he's gone back to a very traditional, more than traditional, I think, further right than Mrs Thatcher's government in what he's done, and that she didn't dare touch the NHS, and he really <laughs> is privatising it. Um, I think that, you know, the austerity has been a wonderful uh, opportunity for them to really cut back, shrink the size of the state. And he said that, you know, even when growth comes back, he has no intention of growing it again. So we wanted to write all that down. It's a, it's a ready reckoner for anyone who's a campaigner to see exactly what they've done on each field, in each field of <coughs> policy. But also we wanted to nail the idea that Cameron is somehow a pragmatic guy who's being pushed by the right-wingers in his party. I mean, he is absolutely up for the shrink the state austerity programme. So he was lying before, or he was, God forbid, a politician should just have been saying what he thought he needed to say to get elected, and then 
once he got in, the mask slipped, and if it wasn't for you pesky kids, he might have got away with it. Well, I think Not a lot of people can see it. I think it's much more extreme than I've ever seen before. I've been watching politics a long time. And, of course, people say things before elections that they don't necessarily carry through, put things but in the manifesto. you have seen it coming, not just you personally. But well, the, I the, didn't vote Conservative. No, and you um, just said whoa, he was whoa, speaking whoa. sincerely. <laughs> 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 I'm tweeting he was, this. He was speaking <laughs> sincerely about the NHS. I, I mean, there's a value judgment. In well, it's very odd that then the very first thing he should do is to, start, is to put through a really radical... Uh, act for dismantling the M NHS and for privatising every element, for saying that every uh, every element of it should be up for bids for any private mm. company that wants to so take a was, chunk of it. Was the mask off I'm afraid right, I think it was. I think it was in a way what that. What am I bid for this? Yeah. But although it does add to the general gaiety of the nation when Louise Mensch takes to Twitter to attack Nadine Dorries for attention seeking. <laughs> <laughs> that was a truly a thing of beauty, I thought. Simon. The French have a saying, every 200 years a country needs a revolution. And I think, uh, that's right. We, we probably do need one. Um, I'm too tired now, but... Uh, I, I, to, uh, I never wanted to take drugs till the Daily Mail told me not to. And... Uh, <laughs> you know, I hadn't even heard of drugs till the Daily Mail mentioned it. And, um, and now I'm uh, one of the top registered heroin users in the UK. It, it, it's taken me a long time to get there, and it's a, a, a position I hold. It's, it's winner stays on, basically. Yeah. No, I'm not. I don't. But, um, yeah, I said, what was the question? I no idea. I absolutely no Yeah, I, I agree with Polly as well. I agree with yeah. too. She knows stuff. <laughs> she, and it's all in here. Polly, 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 Polly. It is all in dogma and disarray. Polly, by, uh, you, you, would you, you ever consider going in the jungle in that? <laughs> <laughs> no, not even to get my point across to you. To argue against her on abortion. Yeah. Be tempting, but I'm sure, not quite. I'm sure Anton Tech can't wait to have the abortion discussion. <laughs> <laughs> you just said a kangaroo's bollock in your mouth. Now, what about the abortion? <laughs> Well, crikey, I've just checked the time. And it is indeed true that Welfare Secretary Ian Duncan-Smith is proposing that people living on benefits should get no state money for a third child. Contrary to what Polly Toynbee has just tried to claim, this does actually make perfect sense. Uh, a generation of kids living on nothing guarantees a criminal underclass which will provide a regular supply of inmates for private prisons. So it's great for economic growth. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our panel this evening. Uh, Simon Munnery, Rob Grant, Kevin Day and Polly Toynbee. <laughs> also, of course, uh, the architects of our entertainment, Mr Nick Revel and Mr Alistair Parry. This is no pressure to be funny. I am James O'Brien. Good night. That's Steve Griffith.